welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we talk about the book tour that we've been on and how the future we choose is now penetrating the world. We also touch on the emergence of the coronavirus, the Super Tuesday elections, and we talk to Stella McCartney. Thanks for being here. Right, I don't know about you guys, but I'm exhausted after two weeks on the road with the book tour. So I have no agenda or plan for this conversation. Go. Well, that's wonderful because I'm at <laughs> negative 40. <laughs> I am Paul, so exhausted. You're going to have to carry the day. Come on. I am completely full of energy from watching you two travel around the world, dazzling audiences and me with an explanation of how we can choose a future that inspires and and delights. And uh, it's just interesting that as you're, you know, clearly as all of our batteries rise with energy, unfortunately, yours seem to empty out. But there you go. <laughs> the way it works is uh, entropy or something. All the years I've just been stacking Christiana's diary with meetings and speeches, and I was like, oh, there's some nice real estate there we could put another speech in, have now blown up in my face. As well, I realized, I'm so glad to hear like that. To live it. <laughs> but I have to say, it has been such a, pl- a pleasure and a privilege to be on the road and do all these things. It's, it has been fun. I mean, I'm tired, but it's been no, fun. No, it has been fun. And um, and honestly, I'm, I'm truly grateful, right, yeah. uh, that people have reacted so positively um, because that's what we want. Yeah. What we want is for people to begin to turn away from paralyzing doom and gloom to actually trying to ask, what can I do? Yeah. So. And you know what's been really touching for me has been these book lines, right? So after we do these events, then three, four, five hundred people line up and we sign books. And they come around. I've never done anything like that before. And so I just try and like make eye contact with them and say hi and understand who they are. And so many of them say, because they maybe haven't read the book at that point, say, I listen to the podcast, I wait for it every week. It's really made me feel yeah, 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 like yeah. we can do something and like this is a great endeavour and we can create a better world. It's really been very encouraging. Well, thank you to our listeners who are growing in number. It's very exciting. And now I also have to tell you, Paul, that everything that, you know, when, when we're off stage and when we go and do other people's podcasts or interviews or whatever, there are two standard things that always happen, one at the beginning and one at the end. At the beginning, our friend here, i.e. Tom Rivet Karnak, as he now wants to be called. Uh, <laughs> That's not a new thing. I have been Rivet Karnak for a long time. Yeah, but, just but, came but not out to me. Not to me. You've always been Tom Karnak, and I, this Rivet, you know, is <laughs> like... just to mess with you. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sort of appeared in front of us. Anyway... So Tom Rivet Karnak always says at the beginning, oh, can we please ask you for a favor? Could you please mention, you know, the podcast? Because we have this podcast. And so can you please mention it? And then at the end, just in case, he says, and by the way, when you introduce us as authors of the book, could you also say that together with Paul Dickinson, we co-host the podcast Outrage and optimism. There you go. Yeah. But it's been sort of like a Pavlovian type response because now Christiana started doing it too. So I think my work here is done. Very good. Well, <laughs> fantastic training. It's all about on the job training. We're always trying to like get up to a higher level, you know. Um, so what's coming up? What other events can we look forward to? Where are they? Well, so next week, um, we were supposed to be going to Australia. And actually, and this we should t- touch on this in this podcast, I can't go for a reason that many of our listeners will immediately relate to, um, to do with coronavirus. So... My children's school said that because the flight we had to take was routing through Singapore, 
um, that if I went, then I would either have to self-isolate away from my kids for two weeks or not see them for two weeks. So I'm not going, Christian's going on her own. But you're not reaching through Asia, are you? You're going direct to Australia. Well, you know, never ask me what my route is. <laughs> but um, I do believe... wakes up in the morning and looks uh, at a piece of paper to tell her where she is. Exactly. Um, no, I believe that my flight to Australia is through Singapore and then back on the Perth to London straight flight. What are you going to do? You're going to go there and tell well, them they're doing a great job in Australia? I don't and... have kids who are going to school in Yeah, Britain. no, that's true. And it's really, I mean, we should get into coronavirus and talk a bit about it, but there's some real proper precautions and there's some hysteria going on, of course. But tell me, are you going to go there and reward the government for doing such a great job on climate change? No, you know, I, I have to say that the destruction of the bushfires, 34 human lives, 3,000 homes, 10 million acres, 5% of GDP, and 1 billion animals burned to death, has made me so irate because A, it could have been either avoided or at least made much less worse had there been measures at the appropriate time. But also the mismanagement of the government has made me so irate that I think that for the first time I am not going to be diplomatic. And um, the first time. <laughs> yeah. For the first time, have you, uh, do, uh, why are you laughing? That's so funny. It's like, <laughs> you practice something called diplomacy, but it has very spiky edges, Christian, if I might say so. Well, I'm not even going to try to practice diplomacy this time. How's that? All Sounds right. good. Get ready, Australia. <laughs> Christian's coming. Prime Minister, back to Hawaii if I was you. I'd go back on holiday if I was you. <laughs> Um, so, look, on this coronavirus, um, I think that there is something extraordinary to be said about how, uh, and I'm actually borrowing from one of my favourite journalists, um, many have said this, uh, we suddenly realise that the nation state cannot be some castle, um, that this virus doesn't recognise walls or borders, and that we are, in fact, one human race dealing with global problems, and we need to come together as a, as a human family. And, and I think, you know, I don't, you know, there's nothing wrong with people having their kind of flags and their, and their national identities, but I think we also have to recognise our interdependence, and the coronavirus is teaching us that. Completely. And I mean, the, the other analysis I saw, um, particularly given everything going on in the US, the debate about the Democratic um, primary, so for Tuesday, etc., is that we are as vulnerable as the most vulnerable members of our society, right? There was some really interesting analysis that looked at the fact that probably those in the food preparation sector don't get paid leave as a result of coronavirus. And when the analysis is that coronavirus can remain on an item that has been touched for I didn't think this was particularly helpful, between two hours and nine days is the analysis I've seen, that actually we are all much more interconnected than we've ever considered in that regard, right? And actually, there's been a very interesting um, response in terms of emissions as well. Have you seen those maps from China, the changes in air pollution? I mean, I wouldn't be at all surprised that the coronavirus is going to help emissions fall, oddly enough. And that's a strange thing to think about. True. But of course, you know, it won't be a help if it's just a drop and then a roaring back. Of course. And, you know, the human loss of life, of course, cannot possibly, you know, be tolerated in response to that. But if there is a drop and as a result of that, society begins to get used to a slightly new normal, which doesn't involve so much travel, etc., that could be good. 
Yeah, I mean, I particularly recall I spent many years in the, in the video conferencing industry and, and our little company used to do very well when there was a volcano or something like this. And I was with some people from the public sector at a, an event last night. And they were all, they were quite new to climate change, but they have the public interest very much in mind. And they were saying, isn't it extraordinary that we're all focusing so much on coronavirus, which is actually in comparison to climate change, not going to kill so many people, frankly. And, and why can't we keep this attention on the much bigger issue of climate change? I thought their reflections were fascinating. What was their answer to that? I mean, that is the question, but what was their answer? To be honest, they really didn't have one. Um, they were torn between this debate about kind of, oh, you know, humans, you know, we've got these problems, we're selfish, we don't want to change our lifestyles, and then sort of blaming kind of government inaction and international dysfunction. So they were a bit lost, you know, but I, but I think that they, they, they recognize that that, you know, they're all running around in response to coronavirus. There are these, you know, crisis meetings and they're just wondering why we don't have these crisis meetings about a really a much bigger problem. I think it's because um, this virus has punctured through the myth of exceptionalism. And, you know, we, we tend to think XYZ is only going to happen to other people other people in other geographies, in other generations, in other socioeconomic strata, um, you know, on and on and on and on. And, and this has just punctured all of that myth. And all of a sudden, people don't even want to shake your hand anymore. Yeah. Right? The foot tap. You've seen the foot tap. Yeah, the yeah. foot tap. Because all of a sudden, you know that there is nothing that protects you. It's not, you know, a generational thing. It's not a geography thing. It's not a socioeconomic st status, you know, thing. Nothing, nothing. So, you know, back to where we started on this, this is a human challenge um, and we're all human, thank heavens. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's just, if on a slightly different topic, Super Tuesday's happened. Uh, we now know uh, Joe Biden is, uh, you know, um, likely to be, or, or, or Bernie perhaps, uh, two rather older men. Uh, white men. White men, yeah. Well, yeah, there you have it. Um, it may well be, to be honest with you, that Trump wins again. And I just wondered within the context of that, what this means, you know, with the climate change, the critical meeting coming up in Glasgow in, uh, you know, in, in, in November, what are the implications of Trump winning for the global movement to address climate change, Christiana? Oh, well, how is that for a happy topic? I'm so, <laughs> I'm so glad we have some daffodils to look at here. <laughs> Um, no, honestly, I, I think, you know, we have been pretty consistent in saying that um, four years of Trump um, in power have been sort of manageable. And thanks to the power and the vision of most of the economic and productive actors in the United States, we've been able to squeeze our way through. And in fact, the U.S. might even comply with what they said they were going to do in the first tranche of the Paris Agreement. But four more years is, honestly, it, it is a very serious hit. It will obviously be a, a hit to the moon in, in Glasgow. But more importantly than that, what other regulations he might be able to roll back and the international impact that this will have both on a geopolitical level, but also um, just on a technology advancement level. It, it's actually pretty scary, to be frank. Mm. But Paul, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't send up the white flag just yet. 
You know, I mean, I do think that there's this really interesting discussion going on inside the Democratic Party in the US between sort of, and I mean, the fact that it's two old white guys is just desperately sad, apart from anything else that we've come to this point. But, you know, the idea that, that Bernie can mobilise young voters, that he can actually sort of like, you know, get out the vote, and, you know, the, the, more, the more progressive wing of the party could be more energised by him as an election electability strategy versus Biden, who can kind of appeal across the aisle and be more, more attractive to more moderate voters as an electability strategy. These two sort of different narratives of electability between those two and, you know, huge division and discussion between those two different camps. I thought it was interesting that the young people didn't turn out really for Bernie in Super Tuesday, which is possibly doesn't bode that well for his election. Um, I mean, but obviously, Going around the US, and I, I wasn't sort of that present in the US when George W. Bush had his election with John Kerry in 2004, which is possibly the most comparable election to this one. But the degree of anti-Trump sentiment, even in places like the Midwest, where my wife comes from, Minneapolis, is really significant. So a well-run campaign, I do think, could still galvanise popular opinion, whether it's by Bernie or Biden in order to to defeat him. So I think that, you know, much of our focus has to be, because you, as you've said, um, you know, before this podcast, the Glasgow meeting will be one of two different tones. If Trump loses, even though the US official delegation will be there, it will be still be such euphoria around the idea that the US is going to be back pretty soon after that, that it will create a tone that can more likely lead to success. If he wins, it's going to have to be a hell of a political strategy to draw something out of that that feels like like a success. I actually don't think this is about eligibility, Tom. No? No. I think this is about the contrary. I think this is about defeatability. Hmm. And the reason why I'm saying that is because independently of whether um, the Democrats end up with Biden or with Sanders, I don't really think it's going to be about them. Right. I think the election will turn out to be about whether I love Trump above all, no matter what he does, says, invents, lies about, I still love him and I will believe everything he does and says, or I hate him so intensely that I will do anything to yeah. get him out. It's the Trump or not Trump vote. It is totally the Trump or not Trump. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty sad. Yeah. And it's pretty sad that, you know, the Democrats are not able, because, you know, the 2008 campaign, the enthusiasm, the excitement, the yes, we can, you know, we all want to kind of feel that again about a Democratic candidate who ends up becoming sort of the leader of the world. I don't know. I, I, I'm not, right now, I'm not feeling that. Okay, so what we're going to do over the next yeah. few weeks is we're going to noodle on this with yeah. all of our friends who will be writing to us yeah. and talking to us and our excellent guests, and we're going to game out good strategies for all situations. Plan? Good well, idea, if, if, if you would like to orchestrate that, that's fantastic, yeah. Paul. Uh, Paul, you need to yeah, you need to find some good political analysts in the US. You can come and help help us understand it. I'm on it. All right, awesome. So we're now going to go, Christiana. You went early this week. You made a side trip to Paris to a more glamorous event than we've been used to. <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that, guys. <laughs> yeah, where was the invitation? I seem to remember, like, all this kind of like, oh, do come to this, uh, you know, conference on uh, carbon capture and storage in Norway, you know. Those invitations come, but when it's the uh, fashion show in Paris, there's nothing in my inbox. Well, that's too bad for you. <laughs> so Stella McCartney um, has been asking me a couple of times to come to several of her events uh, because... Stella is actually quite proud of the fact 
that she was the first uh, in the fashion industry to have a commitment to make her entire fashion company focus on admittedly luxury brands that, however, did not use any animal products. Mm. And, uh, you know, she she told me, and you'll hear it in the interview, that it was a decision that she actually made when she was 12 years old. I also recently discovered that she's the daughter of Paul McCartney. <laughs> Twit that she, I am. It's hilarious when you listen to the interview. Because oh, you like the Beatles, do Christian, you? Really? That's nice. Me too. Christiana didn't know. I didn't and know. And so at one point, Stella gently drops in, oh, I'm the daughter of Paul and Linda McCartney. And Chris like, oh, yes, of course. But she didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's you know, busting. <laughs> of course. Yeah, and I, I've been thinking about why that. And I actually always take people for who they are. I don't necessarily, you know, go up their lineage and take people because they are the daughter of or the yeah, grandchild yeah, yeah. of or, you know, whatever. And so I am frankly somewhat uninterested in who your parents are because to me, you know, it's about what are you contributing to the world? Well, so, but that, I, mean, I mean, I have to say that that is a huge compliment to what Stella's achieved, right? To have totally. such a famous father and for you to totally. know her for herself, yes. even though she shares the last name, yes. is actually amazing that she's yeah. come out from, not the shadow, but she's moved beyond that totally and become her own. Totally her yeah. own, yeah. you know, on her own standing. Yeah. Um, but, but she does come from, as I now know, um, from parents who were really exemplary with respect to animal rights and... Uh, and vegetarian and actually veganism. So, um, so you know, kudos to her that she took that, which she had encouraged, uh, she had inherited, and then took it to an industry that had nothing to do with her parents, right? Um, and she has been absolutely consistent and faithful to that value in her, which was a moral value, but which she converted into a economic value proposition. And that is, you know, I think that is the the, the real strength of uh, of what Stella has been doing. In any event, so um, I, I was finally able to uh, to accept this fantastic invitation, and the invitation was to go to her fashion show. But you will be happy to know, Paul, that I actually did not go to the fashion show oh. because I had other things to do in London, like present our book. Ah. <laughs> um, she asked me to go the night before the fashion show to Paris to the fantastic opera um, because she invited 60 journalists with before the fashion show, the evening before the fashion show, to um, again, again, send the message that it is entirely possible to do fashion even at the high end without the use of furs, without the use of leather. Actually, in her whole conversation, I realized that I was wearing leather shoes and I was like, oh, no. whoa, I have to really look at this. We, we have a shop in, in Brighton, my, my home, called Vegetarian Shoes. Yeah. And it's a sort of symbol. But you were at the Paris Opera House, right, which is yes. one of the most spectacular buildings in the world, and something happened, right? Yeah, well, this is typical Stella, right? <laughs> so I arrived a little bit early um, because I wanted to go through the, the preparations, and her team or the, the company had rented the grand staircase that leads up to the um, theater uh, and some of the halls for the fashion show the next day, but the grand staircase that leads to those halls 
for the evening before. And they had put out beautiful cushions and, you know, their vision was the 60 journalists will be sitting on the staircase and that's where this will happen. Well, that's not where it happened. (laughs) (laughs) Because um, Stella arrives, we sit on the staircase, we have our little chat organizing what she wants done um, in her evening, evening event. And then I say, but Stella, I really want to, you know, steal 15, 20 minutes of you for our podcast. Well, the podcast engineer had actually set himself up above the staircase in the little circle that, um, from which you can enter into the grand area, you know, where the stalls are and the, and, and all the, um, the circles for the audience. And that is right underneath not only, you know, that amazing architecture of the uh, just voluptuous architecture of the Paris Opera, but also under that hand-painted Chagall scene. And um, and so Stella came in. We did a little podcast that we will play for you. Um, But then she couldn't resist the temptation, right, to peek into this grand area. And she goes, right, this is where we're going to bring the journalists. And I, said, <laughs> I said, Stella, you do realize that if you illegally bring all the journalists in here, you may not be able to rent the space again in October for your next fashion show. She was completely... <laughs> didn't she, care. No, she didn't care about that. <laughs> um, the word that she used, I shall not repeat. Um, and so she went and she asked everyone, is there anyone here who is officially representing the Paris Opera House. And well, of course, it was only the journalist. So then she said, right, in that case, we're all going to sneak in. <laughs> and How many journalists? 60. It's high-level mischief, this. <laughs> and, and we're going to sit underneath the Chagall ceiling. So she sneaked them all in, and she had everybody, you know, sit in the chairs before she started talking. Uh, and she said, right, everybody look up and enjoy Chagall. And so everybody was, you know, slouching in their chairs, looking at the ceiling, this amazing Chagall ceiling. And then that's where we had our conversation until... You got got busted, right? We got busted, (laughs) right? Until the security guard comes in and gives us, you know, reads the riot act. Um, And then we had to leave. I love it. Well, Well, you know, we have the conversation that you recorded. Oh, no. And we also have... Clay and Marina managed to track down an iPhone recording of the conversation that you and she had on the stage. So we'll first play the 15-minute conversation that you had with Stella. Which is legal. Which is legal. And then we'll go into the illegal piece. Very, very naughty piece. (laughs) We're on the run from the Paris Opera House. Okay, (laughs) let's do it. Stella, thank you so much for taking time here in Paris. Oh, bonsoir. Uh, just a few moments before your fantastic show tomorrow and before our conversation tonight. Yes, Very exciting. I know. Thank you for taking the time to come on Outrage and Optimism. I think you know why we're outraged, and I hope we will find out why you are both outraged and optimistic. Let's do it. But um, I wanted to first ask you, it, rumor has it that when you were 12 years old, I can't even remember what I was doing when I was 12. But rumor has it that you decided that you wanted to dedicate your life to fashion and that that would not involve animals. Is that story true? And how did that come about? 
Yeah, it is true. Um, I was once 12 years old. Yes. Which is a miracle. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what happened with me? I grew up on an organic farm in the middle of the British countryside, and I was brought up a vegetarian. Um, so the the idea of killing animals in any way um, certainly to eat them um, was really something that I didn't buy into. And I was very fortunate that I grew up in, in a way that, um, you know, opened my eyes to the world. And I had a very sort of, I think, forward thinking set of parents, you know, that really looked at the world with a different set of eyes. So I was very fortunate and blessed to, to start off life in that way. Um, and I grew up in a creative home. And I knew that I wanted to do something creative, and it was really fashion that, that caught my attention. And I was very passionate about it from a very, very early age. When I was 12, I made my first, first jacket, and it was um, out of faux suede, actually, because, yeah, I always knew I wasn't going to use an animal product as, as part of my, um, my fashion design. And... It, it really then went further when I was lucky enough to get a job. I went to school. I went to um, a great art college called Saint, Central St. Martin's in London, and I did my degree show. And even then, I didn't use any leather. I had all um, fabric shoes, and I was very conscious. I just my, The idea of being hypocritical really wasn't something that I felt comfortable with. And also, I had very public parents, and we were very public um, I think, animal activist families. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I was right. ever going to kind of then really compromise my ethics and my beliefs to to make a leather handbag and, and leather shoes, you know. And and I was, I, you know, I've always been very, very proud of the fact that people accepted that of me in the industry. And, and as a freak in, in the world of fashion, they still came to me and they still wanted to subscribe to to my way of, of thinking. And, and so I've been lucky well, so far. You, you describe as they accepted you as a freak. Um, not the kind of description that I would put on that, but you were the absolute first, right? Yeah. You really began to cut that path into no animal, completely animal-free fashion. Um, I think um, we're still the only ones. You the first are. even then, and I think, you know, the show that we'll, we'll, we'll have tomorrow here in L'Opera Garnier, where we're sitting right now, um, it will be still the first and only well, not the first because I've been doing it forever, but it, it is the only luxury fashion house to to have a completely cruelty-free collection. And, and, you know, that's interesting. I think that what's happened with me growing up, I was Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney's child. And mm -hmm. so that afforded me my foot in the door and it gave yeah, people a reason a, quite to Quite a stage of, to be yeah, born on. Yeah, you know, but it, it made people, I think, want a part of what I had to offer perhaps. And and so part of my career was very much, can she prove herself beyond this, this title, if you like? And then I think what happened was I was slowly, I proved that, you know, people wanted to wear my clothes and I could do my job. And then I was still this strange eco weirdo that that really wanted to look at things differently and didn't buy into really the core business of, of fashion is leather, actually, mm -hmm. you know. And, mm -hmm. and um, I think slowly what happened, and certainly over the last couple of years, just now, people have made that connection between environmental issues and and, you know, and fashion and the harm that, that we have to contribute as an industry. And so that's a conversation I've been afforded to have more. Well, that's where I wanted to ask you, do you, do you see a change? You say you are still the only one. Are there some tiptoeing in your direction? There are. I mean, the most 
houses of merit have given up fur. So over the last year, um, years, when most did that people, happen? Yeah, what was, I know. What was, when was that? I think it's happened because young people won't stand for it exactly. now. And you know, fur has been in and out of fashion. We've all seen so many campaigns and so many movements where we thought we had hope and fashion was going to, you know, fur was going to leave leave the landscape of pa- fashion. But sadly, it's a fickle industry and we are mm. fickle, us humans, mm. and, you know, things come in and out of fashion. So it kind of crept back in and, and, of course, there's still a ton of fur out there and the fur body is a very powerful body and, and they're protecting themselves and there are markets that are booming in fur. But at the end of the day... Right now, fur, in my opinion, well, number one, it's deeply cruel and deeply unnecessary because the alternatives are far better for the environment, far better for the animals, and you cannot tell the difference. And people don't look young in fur. They don't, they come across as old-fashioned, you know, yes. and, and so we're in a good moment for that. And so there Relics is hope. of last century. There is hope in, in that area of the conversation, and, and people have joined um, my thoughts on that because, yeah, I was certainly one of the first to not do fur. Um, and now I think the show you'll see tomorrow, I'm really opening up this conversation of, okay, you've all accepted and acknowledged that we're one of the most harmful industries in the world to the environment, and now you've opened up the, the conversation about fur. But are you actually... Have you got the bollocks, if you don't mind my French, to actually look at animals and and the farming of animals and the connection not only to the environment there, but also the cruelty, the deep cruelty mm. and, and the deaths that we're we're, you know, we're we're part of, you know, and that's what I'm talking about a little more tomorrow and, and Well, leather. you know, and I'm just so fascinated because there is a, a very, very heated conversation that I'm sure you know about about whether the change toward responsibility, environmental, animal rights responsibility, all of that responsibility has to be regulated or can it come because of anticipation of customer expectation? And I would dare say, in your case, it is 100% your conviction, but also where customer expectation is taking us toward. And isn't it that that is actually making the fashion houses change? Absolutely, it is. And that's that's a revolution. And that's really cool you know like there it's, it's a rebellion cool. and and i think i'm a rebel i think anyone that thinks this way and thinks outside of a box and doesn't conform we are change and you know and and it, people aren't comfortable with that on on the whole i think that the absolutely the consumer a conscious consumer today wants to eat differently they want to act differently mm-hmm. they want to travel differently they want to live in a better way and why can't you do that with your wardrobe as well and I think businesses are the last to to actually understand that and the world leaders are the last people to understand that. I do think we it would be great if we could see policy change if we could see meaningful um you know laws and meaningful incentives actually. You know my entire industry to accelerate the change. Well, you know my entire my entire career has I've been punished for thinking this way financially my business would be hundreds of times bigger if I just had conformed and done leather um but are I, you coming into your own now is this the time for Stella McCartney? I you know it's never been what drives me but I believe very firmly that if you have a healthy and strong business then people take notice yes. that are in the other areas of business mm. and they go oh you know what 
I want a piece of that. That is what the youth want today. Yes. And we'd better kind of look at what she's doing. And mm. she has a business. She's not selling hemp handbags on, on the corner of the street, you know. And I think also design is critical. I think if I didn't have a beautiful, desirable, amazing quality product to pro- to, to provide, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. I think that it wouldn't But it's been. the marriage between aesthetics and, and environmental integrity, right? Yeah, it is. And I think it is. there is a moment perhaps to be had where the young designers of the today and the young people today starting up businesses of tomorrow could have an incentive to have a better business model, to be mm-hmm. more mindful, to be mm-hmm. encouraged. You know, when I um, import my non-leather goods into America, I get hit by a 30% charge wow. in taxation just because it's not a dead animal. Now, that wow. is medieval that in my mind. That is crazy. That's a crazy leftover taxation law that must be from sort of some cattle kind of, I don't know, yeah, I don't know yeah, what Bobby, it is, but it, it'll be, it's something that should not exist. It, you know, if you put a sliver, a centimeter slither of pig leather on the product, you don't, the, the, the taxation wow, is, is, is immediately amazing. removed. And things like this people don't know. And, and those are the incentives that young people have to be given. You should actually be given less taxation. You know, you should, be, you should have a, a, you should be paid to yeah. make a better yeah, product yeah, yeah, yeah. or you should be um, given grants or you should be, you know, certainly encouraged. And, and so that for me is where I hope we Speaking go. of the finances, do I have it right that you have actually invested in the development of many of these technologies, of the new fabrics? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mushroom leather, your your very famous Adidas uh, yeah. training shoe. You have really invested in the development, absolutely virgin territory yeah. that you have really self-invested in. Yeah. Well, I mean, on a personal level, yes, but and more so on an emotional and physical level. You know, over 60% of the sustainable positive impact that we have at Stella McCartney is because we work at source. So we go to all of the same suppliers um, that a lot of the houses use. Um, and, well, same manufacturers, weavers in Italy, the best mills mm-hmm. in the world, but we take them a different yarn. We'll take them a viscose, for example, that is from a forest that is, yeah, is certified, a, a certified for- sustainable yeah. forest. So, you know, um, viscose, rayon, to all you Americans that are listening, is is, is comes from trees. And mm-hmm. nobody in the industry, industry knows that. I can sit and do talks to an entire room of, of fashion people and say, do you know where rayon comes from? And not, and they'll go, what, uh, petroleum, <laughs> plastic? Like nobody, yeah, nobody has a clue. Knows, right? And so we took three years of our time, three years of our money and our energy and our love and affection, and we developed from a sustainable forest in Sweden. We got the same wood, but we replanted the tree. We're the only house doing that. And, and we took it to the same mill. So that is, is it, it has a massive impact. And if I can show that there's no compromise on the touch, the feel, the beauty, the, the luxury, which the enjoyment, I have. Right. You can't tell the difference. If I can show my peers that that is something to buy into also, we can change the industry because yes. we can lower the price points, we can create a higher demand, and we can eradicate, you know, forests just getting cut down for... For dresses, it's ridiculous. It we is should ridiculous. be replanting them. Well, you know, Stella, I would love to talk to you for two forever. days. No, forever. I know. But me I have too. to let you go because your event is just about well, to start. Well, I'm talking to you. Yes, well, we're event. both talking together. <laughs> no, but no, I no. just have one <laughs> sentence on where is Stella McCartney 10 years from now? Oh, 
Oh gosh, I hope I'm in a field with animals and my baby. My babies <laughs> would be bigger. Maybe they'll have babies then. Um, the business, hopefully, in ten years is still here mm-hmm. because you know this is a vulnerable planet we seem to be living on, and and I think that staying power is is one of the greatest um, hopes for all of us. I and I hope that. We're here as a business and we've transformed maybe the minds of some of the other colleagues that are sharing the industry with us. I hope that we're working with people, alongside people, Mm -hmm. encouraging people, giving optimism. I hope that we're informing people um, and really connecting with the customer because, as you just said earlier, you know, for me, this is driven by the youth of tomorrow. Yes, absolutely. And and that's the power, that's the excitement, Mm. and that's the shift that I've seen. You know, the industry that I, the level that I live in has always slightly talked down to its consumer, slightly um, alienated itself from its consumer, thought that it was maybe too good for a lot of the people that actually keep the jobs going in in luxury fashion. Mm. And I've never felt that way. I've always felt that I serve people, that I'm in a service job. And I think that working together and providing a product that really is better, better for the planet, better for the people that are buying it, cleaning their conscience and, and, you know, better for the animals. I think it's time to talk about the animals. Yes, it is. Because that's the kind of elephant in the room, I think, a lot of the time. (laughs) Absolutely. And now it feels like we can have that conversation. And I do think it is about optimism. It is about providing solutions. It's about helping people, not telling people off telling them if they give up meat one day a week, it's better than giving up all of your transport yeah, it's for a an start, entire week. It's a start, week. right? It's a start. You know, yeah. just every little bit helps yeah. is sort of my Absolutely. approach. Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And I'm very excited to go oh my and join God. you God. This is about stage. you. You're the leader. We're all doing <laughs> this so because much. of you. Thank you, my love. And now I feel, I feel so like I'm not going to be quite the same, so I feel like I have to whisper a little bit. Yeah, because we're doing something very naughty. Okay, you know, it's not the end of the world, right? And I think, first of all, I'd like to welcome you all here this evening. Oh, can you all hear me yes. if I talk at that level? No. Oh, really? God. Okay. Ah. Um, hi. You know, everyone. there's a lot of singing better? that occurs exactly. on that screen. There you go. (laughs) Okay. Okay, I'll speak louder. And if I get into a lot of trouble, then... um, So, welcome everyone to L'Opera Gagné this evening. I'd like to thank you all for coming. I know that it's a scary moment out there. The fact that you've all left your houses is so appreciate it. And it's a busy week. And so thank you for coming in the middle of the night nearly to listen to us talk. Um, what was I going to say? Just going to say that. And I would like to celebrate Chagall real quick. Just take it in and enjoy. Now, this evening, so we did something a little, <laughs> a little bit like this last season. And really, it was for me, I wanted to just give um, some of the people very, in a calm, quiet, kind of non sort of showy, kind of pressy kind of way, I just wanted to give you all a little bit of information and insight into what we do at Stella and how we kind of think differently. And it seems now that the conversation has permission to to occur, which is great. And so I wanted this season to do a similar thing and have really informal, you guys are welcome to ask any questions. It's more of a kind of conversation. You can tell I'm not rehearsed in any way, shape or form. Um, But what I wanted to do this evening was introduce you to a woman that I am in awe of 
And she's going to be all kind of, you know, modest and everything. But really, I'm so honoured that um, she has come this evening. So much so that for the first time in my life, I'm reading off a card because she's so well accomplished. I don't want to miss anything. So this is Christiana Figueres. Wow, that's Thank beautiful you. pronunciation. Thank you. It's my musical ear. She's all the way. <laughs> and um, she is really... To me, one of the biggest inspirations in the conversation of climate change and just really awareness in just to be aware. Um, Christiana brought together governments, corporations, activists, financial institutions and NGOs to jointly deliver the historic Paris Agreement on Climate Change, in which 195 nations agreed on a collaborative path forward to limit future global warming to well below two degrees Celsius. Now, I never did that in my life. Did any of you ever do that in your life? So that's pretty good just there, okay. but there's more. She is the founding partner of Global Optimism Limited, a purpose-driven enterprise focused on social and environmental change. And she's just co-authored a book, The Future We Choose, which lays out two options for our future and sets out how we can address the challenges ahead. She has been highly recognized for her work and has been a vegetarian for eight years. <laughs> So, number one, thank you so thank much you, for being so here. Thank you for being part of this little rebellious moment as well, yes. joining me in that. Um, now, many people know you mostly for your historic role in getting the, Par the Paris Accord done. And from reading your book, I know that you're an optimist, but I can be, it can be hard to be an optimist these days. I want to ask you, after everything you've done on the Paris Agreement, how do you think it's going? <clears throat> Well, first of all, it's so fun to be back in Paris, right? Because this whole thing actually happened here in Paris. Uh, and so it's very fun to be back at, uh, at a slightly less dramatic moment because the Paris Agreement happened, if you will all remember, two weeks after the terrorist attacks in Paris. Uh, and so, you know, first kudos to the French government that was courageous enough to go forward with the, uh, with the Paris Agreement. And also kudos to the French government that prepared that so, so well for, uh, for a whole year before. Now, in case you haven't noticed, there are a couple, the, naughty is the, the word of the evening. So there are a couple of naughty, uh, heads of state. Um, who have recently said that they actually don't believe in climate change, which is quite fun because I think it's sort of the equivalent of saying, I don't really believe in gravity. Uh, okay, that's fine. You're allowed not to believe in gravity, but it's still holding you down on the ground, right? Um, and the same thing with, with climate. Now, I actually think, Stella, that the fantastic news about this year is that those of us who work on environment call this the super year, super 2020, because finally, finally, we have been able to see that climate and biodiversity and oceans and human rights and animal rights are not all little silos out here. You know, it's not like you have to put, pick box A or B or C. The fact is they're all completely interrelated. And by doing well on one, we're doing well on everything else. And that has not always been the case. In fact, in our infinite wisdom, we humans have separated all of those things. And certainly in its infinite wisdom, the United Nations has separated all of that because they have different tracks for all of this. But fortunately, I think both because of the bad news of all of the impacts that we're seeing that are interrelated, 
but also because we have begun to understand that the solutions are interrelated. So a solution that uses less animals, either for food or for clothing and fashion, is also a solution for climate change. It's also a solution for animal rights. And we're beginning to see that all of this is interlinked. So despite the political craziness that we see out there, the real reality is actually a very, very hopeful scene right now. And so working as really the face of the climate, the Paris Climate Agreement, how, how much of it do you, we were talking about this earlier, how much of it do you feel now at this moment in time when you speak of global leaders not taking it seriously, not even mm. really recognising that we have an issue on, on climate crisis, how much do you feel it's about people? It is 100% about people. We tend to underestimate the power of the individual, whether it's the individual as a customer, as the mother of a family, as a student, as a CEO of a company, as the president or prime minister of a country. The fact is we are all humans. That is what binds us. And I cannot tell you how many... CEOs of companies or heads of state have actually come to me lately and said, we are really going to get this right. And the reason why I want to turn around my company, my you know economy, whatever, is because my kids come home at night and ask, what are you doing about my future? So that's not the CEO. That's not the head of state that is actually reacting. That's the human being. That's the parent really understanding, I think, for the first time that all of this is actually within our purview, within our scope of responsibility and certainly of influence. And so that is the kind of thing that makes me very hopeful because we're beginning to demystify the collective, whether it's the government or the corporation or whatever, and understand that honestly, eureka, right? Big discovery. We're all human beings and we all take decisions every day. You touched a little bit on agriculture. Talk to me about that because it's a big conversation to have and I think it's a conversation people don't feel comfortable having, obviously, because it's historical and nobody wants to be told what to do, right? We don't want to be told we can't wear something or told we can't eat something. So how, how, how is that? As, in, as an, I mean, I know, but I'm asking you to tell everyone. Well, you know, I honestly think um, I have daughters who are now in their early 30s. If they have children, we don't know, uh, because many young people are deciding not to have children. But should they ever have children, or in fact, any child who will be a child in, I'm going to say, in 2040, 2050, will turn around to all of us and say, wait, hold on, can you explain something to me? Did you actually use to kill animals to eat them or to put them on your body? Is that really true? Did you really do that? Because it is going to be so much of a thing of the past because social tolerance for that is just diminishing dramatically. And also hopefully if we can use technology to grow the leathers in labs, exactly. and, you know, we can, it, it's a win-win if you like. Yeah. Nobody loses yeah. out. And, and we're not compromising on quality and beauty and aesthetics, right? Mm -hmm. Or on health. That's the other thing. You give up me, you are immediately a much healthier person. So you're better for your body, you're better for the planet. Now we've got PJ here. Where's PJ? Right there. Oh, there you go. God, sorry. <laughs> I blame my brain being locked in a room for days, only seeing clothes. 
Um, you're the Director of Fashion Policy for the Humane Society International. Talk to us a little bit about what that means, what you do in your daily Would love to. job. job. Uh, first, I would just like to say how special it is to be here. Um, my mom grew up in rural Ohio on a farm and was very inspired by your mom um, and raised wow, my sisters cool. and I a vegetarian from birth because Ooh, of that. So um, it's really, really cool to be here. Um, as the policy director, I work with fashion brands and designers to uh, educate on animal welfare, uh, and we've worked with many to announce for free policies. Mm -hmm. um, what that has transpired is now there's entire cities and states in the United States banning fur sales. Uh, it's interesting to take a step back. I mean, the, the fur issue's been around for quite some time, um, but only about nine years ago was when, no, seven years ago, was when fur had to be labeled in the United States. Previously, it didn't have to be labeled at all. So you could buy any fur that was valued at less than $150, and it didn't say anything on it. So we worked really hard to do that. President Obama signed the Truth in Fur Labeling Act of 2010, which closed that loophole. So now all fur had to be labeled. Um, after that, uh, Switzerland went a step further and said, um, we're not only going to label a species country of origin, but we're also going to put on a label how an animal is raised and killed for fur. And uh, talked to a couple brands, and they decided not to sell <laughs> fur in Switzerland anymore. And interesting, right now there is a, um, a legislation to ban fur imports into Switzerland. So how long does that... So legislation for me is critical in the conversation mm. for, for all of us, and so anyone in, in trying to make change in business in this way. How long does that take? That's when I think of, when I see the word legislation, I go, oh my God, that's like five, six, seven, eight, ten years. But this sounds quick. This sounds quicker than I would have thought. You, you both of you have touched on optimism and, and it is, goes back to the person. Um, and right now it's the companies that are asking their consumers, what do you care about? And I, I almost can guarantee that when a company does that, animal welfare is going to be in the top three most things, uh, most important things for them. How do you know that? That's an amazing... Is that your... Is that what your heart wants or is that what your brain knows? No, so Euxton Aporte, before they went for free, they actually asked 25,000 of their customers, including the ones that spend a million dollars on their site, if they wanted them, if you, if they wanted them to go for free, and they said yes. Wow. Selfridges um, recently did a big survey where they asked their consumers, and I think animal welfare was number two most important thing Fantastic. for them. It's amazing. So it, I don't know I'm if it's something like See, it's coming. Yeah. it's coming. I don't know if it's just that this is the first time businesses are asking yeah. their customers or um, if consumers are changing. Um, or some consumers are young and bright. Yes. Do you think it's an age thing? Because that I think, question, I wonder if it's not so yeah. applied to age. I mean, I do feel like it is a Gen Z thing. Um, that's happening right now. And it's primarily, I mean, they're more aware of these issues, environmental, animal welfare, but they also want companies to stand up and do something. Mm -hmm. Previously, uh, when it came to animal welfare, a lot of companies would say, all right, our policy is the five freedoms. That was from like the 1950s where animals have to have water and freedom of pain and things like that. That's just not cutting it anymore. Yeah. Um, they want policies. They want announcements. They want companies to go for free. And, and how that's um, 
moved is now companies are like Chanel are banning exotic skins, Diane von Furstenberg, exotic skins. So a question to you is, I mean, I feel like this wave is, is recent. I've been doing this for about 10 years. You've been doing it a lot longer. Um, have you seen something change in the last, I mean, previously till 2015, I, it was hard to get meetings. And then 2015, yeah. and it's just been this wave of companies. Yeah. Have it's, you seen it's any a, change with your consumers? Oh, my consumers, I, th- I don't know. It's hard for me to say because I've always done this. And I think that my consumers, mm-hmm. half of them came not knowing and a lot of them came because they knew. So I can never really tell. And I'm not the biggest sort of data-driven brand on earth. So I, I don't know. It's not like we've had a massive pickup in sales because all of a sudden people are allowed to have this conversation. I think that we are the go-to house. I've had a lot of people say to me, oh, you know what I love about Stella McCartney is you've, I can go into your stores or I can come to your brand and I know that you've answered all of my questions for me. Mm. And that's a re- I feel very honoured to, to do that, really. I mean, it hadn't occurred to me and I think people feel safe when they come to Stella that I've already sort of... I've done a lot of the homework. I've done a lot of the due diligence. I've sort of, you know, I'm, I'm helping them consume in a more conscious way, I guess. But um, I think it's definitely, we're allowed to have the conversation. I mean, I see people in the room here that have been in the room a lot, but I don't think I would have felt comfortable having a conversation like this than in Fashion Week without feeling a bit ridiculed or kind of, you know, I think I, it, it's, it's, I think it's now a conversation we can have. And that's how you change the norm, right? Just like in a corporation, you establish a particular cultural norm that everyone ascribes to. Um, So you do in society. And so what you're doing is you're helping to change the norm in the jewelry sector. Uh, And by your example and your education, slowly, you know, others will look there and consumers will, will be supportive and you will begin to lower the social tolerance uh, for irresponsible um, and increase the social demand for responsible, right? And it, it's, it's about tipping that balance. And once that balance is tipped, it's just incredibly fast that it goes. In, in this book that, we're, that we've just written, um, The Future We Choose, we found a fantastic statistic that says that every time that a particular sector reaches 20% of a particular standard, whatever it is, you know, no, no, um, no animals in food, no animals in clothing, no, you know, unfair mining practices in jewelry. Once the sector reaches 20, oh, it's only 20%, then it completely tips over. That's astonishing. That's astonishing because we always think, oh my God, we have to get every single company in the sector. No. 20% has statistically been shown to be enough to tip the entire sector because 20% is enough to establish a new norm of the customers. Now, guys, guys, quick one. I'm sorry. I think we have to leave the room. And so I thought that was what fun you guys had in Paris. Um, I was very jealous not to be there. What, what, do, you, what do you leave that? Because that was a very different kind of conversation to me to what we've sometimes had on the past, this intersection between animal rights and how we treat animals. I mean, so many parallels with the conversation we had beyond meat, but from a fashion perspective rather than a food perspective. Paul, what did you take away from that? Well, I mean, she's an inspirational leader. And um, 
There was one thing I kind of disagreed with her about, actually. She said her business would be 100 times bigger if, she, if she'd just gone the conventional route. I, I don't think that's true, actually. I think her extraordinary business success owes itself in part to her um, alignment with her own values, her own beliefs. I think uh, her customers uh, recognize that and respond to it. I've actually uh, felt the uh, leather that uh, uh, that she uses that's made out of mushrooms and it's it's identical to real leather and you know I I've, I'm I'm completely inspired frankly that this high fashion leader uh, Stella McCartney that she is showing the entire fashion industry how animals can be taken completely out of production. She's also saying, you know, I was amazed to discover that, that rayon is made of, of trees. I didn't know that. I also thought it was made of petrochemicals. She's, she's, she's allowing people to use their money to vote for research and development that will free us from unsustainable lifestyles. And I find that incredibly inspiring. Yeah, I was, I was again, so, um, so impressed with her. And on on two accounts, a on how she's willing to risk um, her business model, because on the one hand, she has explained to us how how she's swallowing the costs of the very unfair taxes oh, that wow, and yeah. just yeah. crazy system, right? Yeah. Crazy system. Um, into the United States, and, and and as well as the fact that she started investing into the development of all of these technologies on her own without the advantage of other houses doing similar type investment. And so just from a financial point of view, I just think she's been incredibly courageous. I also think um, that maybe her time has finally come. Mm. She was very, very much of a visionary. And as as we've heard, she's, I, I don't know if she's only proud or she's actually a little bit miffed that she is still the only house yeah. uh, that doesn't use animal products. But I'm hoping that all of the concern around climate change will make it um, that like me, I will never buy a pair of leather shoes again after this conversation with her. You know, and it's so interesting how we have just embedded carbon and animals and, you know, into our daily life without thinking about it. It was all, really all of a sudden that I went, oh my God, I'm wearing leather shoes. Yeah. So, you know, the time may have come that finally her vision of decades ago is now slowly going to become the norm. High time for that. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's interesting. It struck me that, you know, she's almost, she, she, she kind of followed the Tesla model before it was the Tesla model, right? I mean, the idea that you kind of enter the marketplace and rather than providing a sort of cheap alternative that's a poor substitute for a burger, I mean, for, for a car, you create something that's better and faster yeah. and more, you know, and more interesting. And the same now goes for plant-based protein. You know, in many ways, it's better. And you've talked it about is. this, Paul, it it's is. better than the meat it. alternative. And, you know, it's to, she did that 20 years ago, right? She's creating these products that have 
amazing materials that are made in these completely different ways. And we've got to hope now, I mean, the fashion industry has been much slower than the car industry in picking up and mimicking Tesla's success or, you know, or, or other industries where these new alternatives are better than the incumbents and much less impactful. But we've got the, the fashion industry is now under huge pressure, right? I mean, they are, the numbers are somewhat disputed, but they're responsible for a huge amount of global greenhouse gas emissions and a huge amount of land use change. We've got to hope now that they kind of get with the program and see what she's done and actually pick it up and take it to scale. Um, I actually watched after you were there, I watched the part of the runway show that happened the day after you were there. And she's so irreverent and funny, right? Because, you know, all this, all these models came past with fashion. Then at the end, they all come back round again. And she chucked the odd sort of, um, you know, per- animal, like person in a cow suit or person in a squirrel suit kind of coming through. It's really great. She's like constantly raising it up in people's minds. What an inspiring woman. And she's answering that question that we all hear so often. Um, what can I do? Well, if you're working in a fashion industry, which like a recognizable percentage of the entire world, she's shown you what you can do. Yeah. We can all change our own businesses or if we need to start new businesses to bring about these changes, that's the leadership of Stella McCartney. Yeah. Well, and as individuals working, we can all- We can buy. We can all commit from now on not to buy anything that has an animal product. Yeah. Yep. No. Uh, and I thought I was pretty good, but I looked down at my little black shoes and I went, "Oh Uh-oh. my god! Uh oh!" <laughs> no, did, she did. She was generous, generous enough not to mention it. I assume. Yes, she was actually quite loving and forgiving. <laughs> I don't know that she looked down, but <laughs> as all the best people are. So let Indeed. let us make, without having received a dollar from either of them, unashamed uh, shout out. Please buy from Stella McCartney. Please buy from Vegetarian Shoes, the shoe shop in Brighton. Let's make sure we're mindful in how we spend our money because then we can architect this future very every day. Very nice. So just a few quick things before we go. Uh, we've been doing a lot of media. So all of that is up on the Global Optimism webpage. We have a media page there. We did interviews um, across the across both sides of the of the Atlantic in the US last week. Um, there's a range of different things there. We did a Now This video that's coming out soon. We were on a range of different other podcasts, etc. Here in the UK, we were on the Chris Evans Breakfast Show. All of that is available on our webpage. Do check it out. Christiana will be in Australia next week, so Paul and I will be holding down the fort, but we might give you a call, Christiana, and find out how, how the Australian <laughs> government is, is bearing up under the pressure. <laughs> Look out, Australia. She's coming. Thanks, everyone. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. So there you go. Another fashionable episode of Outrage and Optimism. Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. I'd like to thank Callum Grieve, Pete Kluttenbrock, Sarah Thomas, Chloe Revel, Marina Mancilla, Daniel Fink, Sylvie Snow-Thomas, and the team at L Communications. Zoe Sherlock-Antich, Lara Richardson, James Douglas, Caitlin Allen, Sharon Johnson, Marco Serna, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. A special thank you this week to PJ Smith for being part of the conversation. Stella McCartney and her entire team for making this week's episode possible, including Kenneth, the man of the hour, who made the fatefully miraculous decision to hit record on his phone at Stella's event. You know, it's the little things that make the big difference. Okay, before I go, go watch Stella's Winter 2020 show. And I'm not going to say what happens, but watch the show and definitely stick around for the end. And when you're finished with that, you can find us online at Global Optimism and search the hashtag The Future We Choose on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All right, you know what to do. Hit subscribe. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>